Thank you for downloading the Sturgeon Bay Community Church podcast. Join us each Sunday at 8 a.m. and 10 a.m. at the corner of Georgia Street and 12th Avenue in Sturgeon Bay. For more information about Community Church, be sure to check out our website at sbcommunitychurch.com. Now, sit back with a notebook and a great cup of coffee and experience this week's message. Sturgeon Bay Community Church, transforming community by loving God and others. Well, good morning. Every, uh, every Thursday night and every Sunday morning, there's people who get here early. They come and they set up all the, the music stands and the microphones and the monitors and the wires and they get the lights right and the video working and all that. Our, our tech team and our worship team, they, they're some of the volunteers that often just get ignored unless something goes wrong, like my computer dies weekly because I'm inept or, or the microphone doesn't work or a light blows out. It's important to remember that they give up their time or their talent, uh, often of their treasure, and they come and they serve this church regularly. So if you get a chance today, just sometimes say thank you to one of the folks who volunteer in worship or over here in the tech booth, and just let them know that you appreciate them. So hey, let me, let me say thank you guys for what you do every week. Really appreciate it. It's, it's a neat church that we get to be a part of. You see, it, I grew up hearing all the time, and you probably did too, that, that 80% of the, or 20% of the people do 80% of the work in every church. You've heard that? That's not true here <laughs> at all. And, and I love when, when people try to bring that complaint into life. Oh, there's just not enough volunteers. I'm like, have you ever been to community church? Because it's a community, and we've always believed and practiced in this place that everybody's given a gift and a talent. And God gives you a place here to use it for the edification of this body and your own edification. So I would just encourage you, find out what you're great at, you know, and go do that. Bring it to the life of the church. Serve in the way that you're gifted. Grow, thrive, blossom where you're planted. Last week, we began our study into the book of Mark. And I was willing to bet that I'm not the only one who had spent most of your Christian life reading Matthew and John and Luke and some of the other Gospels are really not given Mark its due. And, and, and we fall into good company, as it turns out. Some of the earlier church leaders from Augustine to Luther and others, they really dished on Mark, and they didn't, they didn't give it its due. It was the shorter one, uh, the more condensed one, the one with the ending that takes some understanding to explain and grasp why. And, and so really, people would go to the other Gospels, and they would say kind of Matthew, you know, John, Luke, but would skip Mark. And, and we started to discover last week the incredible richness and the depth and the complete lack of subtlety that characterized John Mark. He, he like me, uh, spent his formative years around somebody hearing their stories. I grew up in Billy Souther's house, so I heard my dad's stories of, of life at First Dallas in the 30s and 40s from him, and, and it was like I had lived there. I knew his stories from camp during the years and earlier churches and family and life and friends, and I knew my dad's stories, and I could repeat them back to anybody. And, and, and Mark, John Mark, his formative years, uh, he, he, he didn't have his dad there. He was a, he was a child of a single mom there, and, and Mary was raising Mark there in the midst of Jerusalem, and other people cared and helped, but 
that day came when Peter and another apostle followed him home and, and knocked on the door and said, we're going to have our Passover meal here, and the Messiah is going to have it. John Mark got to watch Jesus and the disciples have the Last Supper. John Mark was there as, as Judas slipped out the door to betray him. John Mark was there when, when he said, Jesus said, this is my body given for you. And John Mark got to see that and, and be a part of that early community. And John Mark got to see it happen when Jesus appeared after his resurrection right there in the room. And, and he was like, Thomas, look, put your fingers in my hand. Put your hand in my side, Thomas. John Mark got to see this. Wow. Then when, when Peter was let out of prison miraculously, you know, the, the angel shook it and the prison came in, and Peter came out and he came, he came to whose house? To, to the upper room. And whose house was that in? John Mark's. Who's got a better perspective than John Mark? And John Mark spent those early years of his life from, from probably somewhere around 12, 13, all the way through his later life with Peter. Peter would become something like a father figure, like a teacher, like a mentor, like a hero to John Mark. And you can hear it in John Mark's writings. For all those years, he heard Peter tell the story of Jesus and the parables and, and the, 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 the antidotes of all these things Jesus had done. And in his latter life as the bishop there in Alexandria, Mark's disciples and students were like, hey, you need to write this stuff down. You're not going to be with us forever. And so Peter's directness and crassness and get right to the pointness and Jewishness comes through in Mark's writing. Mark's wealth, his inquisitive nature, his, his boldness, and the vigor of youth, you hear it in his writing. But Mark is writing to the Romans as well as to the Jews. And so there's some characteristics about his gospel that are really important to understand, and it helps it, helps it make it easier for us to engage the, the book of Mark. So first of all, you, you figured it out. It was written by John Mark, young John Mark. John Mark went on many of the missionary journeys with Paul and with Barnabas and, and, and you know, Uncle Barnabas. So he spent time with these people. He knew them. Uh, it's short and it's concise by comparison. It's written to Romans and uses a lot of Gentile vernacular. Mark, as a gospel, um, uses some really interesting narrative styles that Romans would have understood and had a connection to and Jews would have understood. He uses a sandwich technique where right in the middle of a story, he'll tell another story and then come back to the main point. It sounds like ADD and squirrel chasing, but Mark's got a technique that he's using and it's really very cool, but he's like a lion. There's just nothing subtle about John Mark and it's what makes this, this gospel so fun to read. And so that's what I wanted to open up with. But the core theme of Mark all the way through it, there's a theme, and that is that Jesus of Nazareth is the Messiah, the Son of God. And if at any time you're wondering, I wonder what this story has to do with or what it's coming back, it's coming back to this. Jesus of Nazareth is the Messiah, the Son of God. And right smack in the middle in, in what we call chapter 10, Mark drops a verse that really clarifies that he says, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve others and to give his life as a ransom for many. Because, because the theme is, you see, Jesus of Nazareth is the Messiah, the Son of God. That's the point. So if you ever read a book in English class and they said, this is the thesis statement and, and this is, the, this is the, the build up and then this is the tension and this is the denouement and this is the blah, 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 blah. It's great. Here's the theme. Jesus of Nazareth is the Messiah, the Son of God. That's what the whole book's about. And that's the thesis statement. That's the cliff notes. Got it? That's the point. Listen, he was first. Mark wrote the first gospel. How many of you this morning on your way to church drove your Model T? 
Anybody? Come on, you drove, it's a great car. Come on, they still run. If anybody drive your Model T, why not? Why not? I mean, it's got wheels, right? It's got a motor. The reason we don't drive it is because we've improved dramatically in vehicles, right? Nowadays, you can get one with power windows and automatic transmission and the choke sets itself and, and, and it's got, you know, power brakes and windshields and all this wonderful stuff that we enjoy. Of course, we don't go back and drive Model Ts except for fun every once in a while. Well, in a sense, in, in the crudest of senses, don't take the example too far, um, Mark was first. And, and Matthew and John and Luke, they improved upon Mark's style, and they filled in some of the blanks, and it took more detail and time as they cleared it up. Matthew, of course, walked with Jesus all the way through uh, the, 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 his, his ministry here on earth. Luke heard it from the others who had been there, and Luke went to be a good scholar to get it. But Mark was there really as it came to its crescendo. So it's a beautiful gospel. And it's worth studying. So, uh, a couple of things before we move any further. Mark introduces something really remarkable in his style, and it's called the periscopic pericope. Now, I know you're all going, that is so amazing. I cannot wait to tell all my unsaved friends about the periscopic pericope. They're all going to come straight to Jesus. Thanks, Shannon, for that. Here's what's important. You remember those things that go under the water, like they're, they're Navy things, and, and they go under the water, all that under, under sea ship? What do they call those things? A submarine, okay. And you've watched the movies. What's that little thing that pops up out of the water and looks around and has the crosshair? What's that thing called? Okay. So what's a periscope do? Well, it comes up out of the environment, under the water. It comes up up here, and it lets you see what's up above without the confusion of what's down here. That's a periscopic view. You come above, you rise above and get a view of what's out there. And then a pericope is in a sense a story, an illustration that helps make the things around it make sense. So what Mark does is he introduces to literature around the world this thing called the periscopic pericope. Mark will tell stories and, and make illustrations and, and bring the story to us without filling in all the details because that's for you to research and understand. But he's just going to cut through all the noise, get up above it, and give you an overview of what's really important, and then you can process that information. Brilliant literary style. And it's invented by the teenager who got to watch Jesus celebrate the Last Supper and follow Peter around through his ministry and later become the great Bishop of Alexandria, bringing to us the level of scholarship and literature that Alexandria was known for as the great library. That's Mark. This is his, his, his gospel. It engages both the Roman and the people who are Jewish or Jewish familiar in his age, and it does some really beautiful things. Last week as we opened in Mark, we looked at verses 1 through 13. And we saw the early part of, of, of Mark, and we were really just kind of blown away at how much was there. I mean, did anybody else realize how much was actually there in just 12 verses, what Mark was doing, and how intense it was? See, to us as Western Americans, we read it today, and it, it's interesting, yeah. But when you really start to dig into it, um, by the way, much of Scripture is this way. The more you start to dig into it, the more you realize, wow, that is impressive what's happening here. All that he's doing, all that's being communicated. And it's one of the reasons the Bible has stood the test of time for this past 2,000 years, is the more you read it, the deeper it gets. The more you understand it, the more you realize there's more to grasp. And Mark is probably one of the best examples of short with huge content behind it. We started with Jesus is the Messiah. Let me read the, uh, 
the first part of Mark there to you. It says, this is the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. What's the book about? There's your thesis statement. Mark's not beating around any bushes. He says, uh, it began just as the prophet Isaiah had written. In other words, here's the ancient prophets. Here's how they're coming true. He's going to quote Isaiah out of the book of Malachi, making sure that he's covering several centuries worth of Jewish tradition and well-known history. So here's what, he's, what, here's what he's invoking. He says, look, I am sending my messenger ahead of you, and he will prepare your way. He is a voice shouting in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord's coming. Clear the road for him. This messenger was John the Baptist. He was, he was in the wilderness and preached that the people should be baptized to show that they had uh, repented of their sins and turned to God to be forgiven. All of Judea, including all the people of Jerusalem, went out to see and to hear John. And when they confessed their sins, he baptized them in the Jordan River. His clothes were woven from coarse camel hair, and he wore a leather belt around his waist. For food, he ate locusts and honey. John announced, someone is coming who is greater than I, so much greater that I'm not even worthy to stoop down like a slave uh, to untie his, the straps of his sandals. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit, the Ruach, the Numa of God, the life-infusing and dwelling presence of God. As Mark opens up his gospel, he's going to bring prophecy. He's going to bring uh, he, he's going to bring culture. He's going to bring Old Testament Torah and contemporary realities all straight into the face and consciousness of the people. And people are going to hear the message of the gospel, which is Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. You're not going to miss it with Mark. Mark understood what mattered. A few things that he had brought that are, that are worth bringing up again today in case you weren't able to be here last week. Um, one, of, one of the neat things about Mark's uh, style is that he brings up this, this issue of, of the Messiah. He used that term, which is translated Christ or Messiah, and it means the one who was going to come and sit on the throne of Israel. He would, he would change everything. He would come and deliver Israel, and people would be back into right relationship with God when the Messiah came. He would sit on the throne of David and be ruler and the people of that time were looking for that Messiah, thinking he would save them from Rome and that he would, he would save the Jewish people and bring back the glory of Israel and of David. And, and in a way, it's exactly what the Messiah came to do, but not in the way the people of his day were thinking. So Mark is going to help clarify that. He speaks of Isaiah, and, and as he does, he speaks of Isaiah, and he quotes from Malachi. And as he, as he does, he's bringing the whole Torah into light for the Jewish reader. He speaks of baptism with John the Baptist. And one of the neatest things is he, he, he talks about how John the Baptist is going to be the one preparing the way of the Messiah, preparing the way of the Lord. And John the Baptist would be in the wilderness. He'd be practicing baptism and baptism to these ancient Jews. And even in today in our tradition, baptism represents a point in life where you've put behind you the past. You've made this decision publicly and boldly and symbolically and said, today it stops and from now on, I am a different human being. I'm a woman. I'm a man that Jesus has called. I'm a woman or a man who's putting behind a behavior or an attitude or a thought or a grudge or whatever. It goes to the past and that is then. This is new. This is now. That's what baptism was like. And the baptism of John was complete immersion, which means somebody went completely under the water. And in that crowd of many witnesses, when they came up out of the water with hands extended, people clapped and they celebrated, a new life has begun. Death to the old, life to the new. And this is what the baptism was. And the baptism of John represents repentance from something and dedication to another. And that's why it was important. But John the 
Baptist is out in the wilderness in a really specific place doing a really specific thing. And this was astonishing. He was, John the Baptist, was doing his ministry at a place out there on the Jordan River where Naaman had come to be baptized when the prophet had told him to dip yourself in the Jordan River seven times. And, and this king was like, why would I do that? This ruler was like, why would I do this? Why would I dip myself in your dirty old river? We've got cleaner rivers back home. And he says, the Lord of heaven tells you to do it, to dip seven times. And Naaman does it six times, nothing's happening. He's like, what is this? He dips the seventh time. He comes up clean. That's the spot where John was baptizing. Whoa. So by doing so, he was calling attention to that. But wait, there's more. The place where it's going on is the same place where the whirlwind had appeared, that great pneuma, that great ruach. The wind is blowing, and God speaks out of that whirlwind, and Elijah has this experience with God. Later on, Elijah would be taken up to heaven in a chariot of fire, and where did he leave from? that same spot where John's baptizing. And this is that same spot where Elisha stood and said, oh God, give me a double portion of my teacher, Elijah's ruach of the spirit that empowered him. And God came upon Elisha with that great spirit. And where did Elisha do his ministry? Right there in this area of the Jordan. And John the Baptist will do it there too. And John the Baptist will wear the clothes. It's why Mark mentions it. John the Baptist is wearing the very clothes that Elijah had worn, and it drew everybody's attention back to the message of Elijah and the message of, of Elisha and the message of Malachi and of Nahum and so many of those early prophets who had called people to repentance and to return to God. And this is what John was doing. And when Jesus came and he's baptized by John, it's signified by Jesus to all. <clears throat> the life of me being the carpenter helping to build Sepphoris and living there in Nazareth, and now moving on, it's time that my ministry has begun. The past begins here, and the future now, my ministry is being initiated. This baptism that Jesus asked every one of us to follow Him in, symbolically and publicly and meaningfully, saying, that was then, this is now my life as a Jesus follower has begun as a, as a believer. And as soon as Jesus does this, He comes up out of the water, and what happens? The heavens are open, and what descends? The very symbol that the Hebrew people understood of people being at peace with God when the Ruach, the God, the Spirit of God descends like a dove, demonstrating my spirit is on you and there's peace between us. When that happens, everybody understood what was taking place, and it's why Mark takes the time to lay it out. What a beautiful picture we got to see last week. But this week... We're going to pick up, and we're going to look at some more things. We're going to go from verse 12 to 28 today. We're going to see how much we can cover. Um, it, it's kind of hard to, to get it all in, but we'll see what we can get to. No rush. Um, so in, in Mark ver, chapter 1, verses 12 to 28, we're going to be in the New Living Translation as we, as we go through this study. Um, <clears throat> I know some of you come from different traditions where you prefer an, uh, a King James or an NIV or a New Living Standard, and, and that's great. I'm not dishing on any of those. I'm just letting you know as far as scholarship is concerned, the NLT is pretty much as good as it's going to get right now. It's excellent. So we've used the NLT at our church, but I don't want you to think that we're trying to dish on any other translation. So for simplicity, if you have your Bible app or you bring in your Bible, this one will read just the same way to you here. If you didn't, we're going to put it up on the screen so everybody's happy. Um, but in, in, in these verses, a few things are going to happen. We're going to look at Jesus enters into a wilderness temptation time. We're going to hear about the good news and the kingdom of God. We're going we're gonna to encounter this whole thing about him calling his disciples and then this Capernaum synagogue thing, which is just 
wow. And then we'll look a bit about confronting a demon-possessed man, which is always fun. So these are the things that are going to happen in these passages. And uh, so join me, if you would, in uh, Mark, the first chapter, uh, verses 12 through 28. The Spirit then compelled Jesus to go into the wilderness where He was tempted by Satan for 40 days. He was out among the wild animals and the angels took care of Him. Later on, after John was arrested, Jesus went into Galilee where He preached God's good news. Uh, the time promised by God had come at last. He announced, the kingdom of God is near. Repent of your sins and believe the good news. Uh, the, one day as Jesus was walking along the shore, uh, the Sea of Galilee, He saw Simon and his brother Andrew throwing a net into the water, for they fished for a living. Jesus called out to them, come, follow me, and I will show you how to fish for people. You've heard it said, I will make you fishers of men. And they left their nets at once and followed Him. A little farther up the shore, Jesus saw Zebedee's sons, James and John, in a boat preparing their nets. He called out at once, and they also followed him, leaving their father Zebedee uh, in the boat with hired men. So uh, here we are on the shores of Galilee, way up north, and Jesus' ministry will begin. Um, and these are the things that are taking place during that time. So let's, let's uh, now focus in on some of, of Mark's periscopic pericopes. The wilderness the wilderness. Now, last week, we started with the wilderness. We talked a little bit about where John was and where he was doing his ministry out in the wilderness. It's a place where you went to escape, um, to get away from, from the urban life and, and society and the trappings of society. And, and people would often go into this Judean wilderness to get away from that, to connect with God, to strip away all the distractions and to just get before their God and, and to go through this time of maybe even fasting and, and, and just surrender themselves and move past something that was holding them back, this wilderness. So Jesus, as He begins His ministry, the Spirit compels Jesus to go into the wilderness where He was tempted by Satan for 40 days. He was out among the wild animals, and the angels took care of Him. So compelled by the Spirit. Now, Jesus is God, okay? Matter of fact, there's a theme to Mark. What was that theme again? Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. I didn't hear you guys real good, so I'll be quiet and let you say it. What's that theme of Mark again? Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. Okay, good. I just want to make sure everybody heard it. So Jesus, who is God, is going to be compelled by the Spirit to go into the wilderness. This is, this is mind-boggling moment here. See if you can get a picture of this. He's 100% God and 100% man. He is God in the flesh, the very creator of the universe who's come to be in His universe, taking on the shape and the form and the limitations of humanity, working in the trades with regular people, serving Romans, as it were, and now it's time for Him to begin His ministry. And the human side of Him is going to have to be completely surrendered to the holy side of Him. And how does this happen? But the Spirit draws and woos and compels Him into the wilderness where a battle is going to take place, friends. And this battle is going to be between this human nature and the holiness of God, which is going to completely overcome Satan and Lucifer, dominate Him, and clear Jesus and prepare Jesus with a nature that is ready to serve. And having dominated the enemy and all those temptations, Jesus is ready to serve in all all of His godliness and all of His humanity at the same time. Have you ever had the Spirit compel you? 
You know the still small voice. You can't necessarily say, I heard a voice out of the pines. Oh, I heard a voice coming out of the TV. You know, it was like a good poltergeist or that. No, 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 no. Most of us don't have that. Most of the time, the Spirit is speaking strongly in you, and that Spirit is just compelling you. You know it? If you're a child of Jesus, that day came when the Spirit was just knocking on your heart, just standing at that door knocking waiting for you to surrender to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, to accept Him as Lord and as Savior, to believe in your heart that He is God and confess with your mouth that God raised Him from the dead. You, that day came in your life where that call was strong upon your life and you answered it. And, and you're never going to be ashamed of that. And when He calls you, He begins to complete you and to mold you and to shape you so that you be the firstborn of many brethren. And this is what Scripture tells us about the Spirit's ministry in our life. But in Jesus' life at this point, the Spirit compels Him into this battle. Anybody ever been in a, in a competition? Maybe some of you who are soldiers have, have been in battles. Maybe some of you have been, have been fighters, whether it's a, you did boxing or, or wrestling or, or MMA or something like that, and, and you learn what it's like to have an opponent. you got to fight the opponent. And, and you know what it's like to be opposed to somebody. We've seen it in our culture like politicians. They stand on either side. you got to have at least two for a debate, right? And they stand there and they argue back and forth, and it's the same point from two different points of view, and you got to love one, hate the other, and at least that's what the press tells us. And then you got uh, like Les Stroud goes out and He's Survivor Man, right? And he's going to survive against the elements and the heat and the cold and the Sasquatch or whatever. And so, and he's he's got his enemy. It's nature, and he's going to overcome it. Yay! And then, and, and boxers have it. And, and then there's like football. Anybody watch football around here? Anybody pay any attention to this stuff? There's like the good guys, which are the Saints. And so there's these other teams as well that they play football. And so if you're a Packer fan, then clearly anybody who is who is a, a Viking fan has no good taste and no class about them. They have bad hair and they live in bad environments and they have bad motives. And so you've got to have an enemy, right? Like Chicago, you know, the bad guy. You know what I'm saying? We've got to have two sides if there's going to be a conflict, right? Would you love to go see the Packers play the Packers? Boring. You know, we call that practice. You know, it's fun to watch for a few minutes so you can act like you know more than the next person. But reality, you got to have opponents. Then it's a battle. Jesus goes into the wilderness, and it's kind of like this. Look, before we get going, let's set the record straight. You and I, Lucifer, fallen angel, fool, who was made the most beautiful in heaven and kicked out by me. Let's just go ahead and get this thing settled. Let's go ahead and get the pink elephant out and deal with it and end this now. I win, you lose. You, can't, you couldn't defeat Job, and now you can't defeat me. I am God who defeated you already in the form of the humanity I created, and in that form, I'm going to defeat you again. You're going to try to tempt, but I'm going to dominate you. You're going to try to sift my apostles, and they're going to dominate you. And for the next 2,000 years plus, the people who bear my name, my Christian church, they're going to dominate you. You have no power over them. And where they're strong, you're going to be weak. So let's go ahead and set the pattern early. You always lose, and it starts now. This is what's happening in that Judean desert. This is what's happening when Jesus goes in into, uh, into the desert. There's a, a phrase that's been uh, immortalized, I suppose, now by that, that great sage and poet of our day, Taylor Swift, uh, where she says that uh, people throw rocks at things that shine, right? Well, the reality is when you as a person come to a point in your life 
where it's time to put the past behind you and to make a change and to move into the future as a Jesus follower. When, when that day comes when maybe the promotion at job happens and, and you've earned your way up and you take the position of leadership now and the people that used to be your peers are now, uh, they have to answer to you. Or maybe, maybe the job pays better now and you've stepped up a bit socioeconomically and oh my gosh, this is great. And, and now you can drive a little nicer car and have a little nicer house and, and eat a little bit better restaurants and wear a little bit nicer clothes. Your kids go a little... And, and so you step up a little bit or maybe you got that education finished and you step out into the real world. You kind of hit that age where you're a teenager now and you're way smarter than your parents and you understand things they, they could never possibly understand and, and you see the world with clarity and they are fools and they are from about 12 to 40 parents are morons. And then at 40, parents get remarkably smarter. But when you're in that age where you know absolutely everything, you, you've stepped up a bit and you're willing to tell everybody just how smart you actually are. Anybody else ever do that between, besides me and Dina? Anybody else ever go through that with your parents? No. Okay. I didn't think so. So there comes this time where you step up and as soon as you do, you come under assault. Testify? Anybody been there? Has there ever been that point where the church you were in was growing and becoming dynamic and having influence. As soon as it gets up there, other churches are like, throwing rock. Ever happened? You ever seen it? You ever seen a politician does a great thing and then they step up to that next level? People throw rock. At work, you got that promotion. You start to do the right thing instead of breaking the rules like you did before. What happens? Satan was furious. Jesus was beginning his ministry. For whatever reason, Lucifer, who's just a brilliant one apparently, didn't get the clue that God became man and he was going to dominate Satan. The time was here. The kingdom was at hand. This is what the desert experience was about. Okay, so what? Many of you are asking. That's a great story, Shannon. Thanks, Mark. Appreciate it. Somebody tell me the point. The point is simply this. When it's time for you to start serving, when it's time for you to start being the woman or the man that God's called you to, when it's time for you to step up and put some things behind you and step forward, there's going to be a battle in your life. There's going to be a struggle. And the demons of the adversary are going to want to do battle against you and make you fail. One of the, the great voices in, um, in early Christian history, uh, his name was Gregory the Great. And the neat thing about Gregory, by the way, you know something about Gregory, and I'll show you in just a minute. Uh, Gregory the Great lived from, from the late 550s to the, to the mid-600s. Um, and, and during his ministry, he became the archbishop of the city where he served. Um, Gregory was a brilliant academic, but he was also an ascetic, which means he liked to strip things down to the most simple, the most simple Make it simple, get rid of the distractions, and a little bit of a monastic kind of a life. Those are monks, by the way. They become monastic. And they want to serve God without the distractions around them. So Gregory had this real sense of what Jesus' ministry there in the desert was about, why he would go into uh, this time in the wilderness for temptation. And Gregory said that, that uh, in conflict and struggling... Um, sin is going to uh, come upon you. And temptation, that's sin. That's the thing when, when you struggle to do what's wrong, even though you know it's wrong, um, or struggle to do right because you want to do wrong. In these moments, there's this thing called temptation. And temptation comes in three stages, says Gregory. And Gregory says the first one is, is suggestion. The second part of that is delight, right? It's suggested to you, now, now you, you kind of you delight in it. I kind of like this idea. And then 
uh, comes the third part, which is just consent. You give in and you actually give in to temptation. Now, here's Gregory. Uh, Gregory came up with this little thing. It's a type of chant that happens, you know, that people do. It's a music style that the monks are known for, known as what kind of chant? Gregorian. So see how smart you are? You're already familiar with Gregory. So let's hear a little bit more of what Gregory has to say. He's saying that just like Eve in the garden, there comes the suggestion to sin. What, what, what was that tree again? Which was it? Yeah. It was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And right there in the middle of the garden, God had planted it. And he said, listen, every tree that's on this earth, all these things, all this delicious stuff that I've made for you, it has no thorns. There's no thing to bite you. There's nothing to sting you. Everything is happening. There's no sin. It's a perfect environment. You can have anything of it. They're like, wow, all of this. He says, but don't touch the remote, huh? And anybody ever told your four-year-old, don't touch the remote? Everything else in the house, all of your Legos and your Matchbox and your Barbies and your Shopkins, it's all there for you. Don't touch the remote. What's the first thing four-year-old goes for? What, what's he go for? The remote, man. Of course, that's exactly right. Reach. Don't touch this tree. And so what does Satan do? Where does he, where does he bring suggestion to Eve? It sure is pretty, isn't it? Hey, what God tell you about this one over here? Nah, he won't kill you. It'll be great. Look at that. Look at that. Pretty, isn't it? Eve begins to delight in the tree. She looks at it, that the fruit was beautiful and good for food. And she's like, hey, yeah, that's some really pretty fruit. I mean, I've seen apples before. Them's good apples. You know? So it's like, yeah, sure it is. Hey, why don't you just uh, have a little bite? Okay. So what's Eve do? She takes it and she, what's she do? She not only was suggested, she delights in it. Now she consents and she takes some. And she's like, here, Adam, you spineless moron. Why don't you have some too? And he's like, Okay. And what do we all inherit now? The sin nature where suggestion and delight and consent came to all of us. Frustrating. Frustrating. He won that battle. <laughs> but he didn't win the next one, did he? Because he tries to do it with Jesus. And here's the thing. Jesus is 100% God while he's 100% man. Jesus was born with no sin nature. So Jesus isn't going to find delight. Suggestion is going to come to him, but he's just simply going to put it away. And although Jesus experiences exhaustion and hunger and fatigue and exposure and vulnerability and frustration, all these things happen to Jesus, but Jesus does not find delight in sin. So he, here's where this comes home. Let's roost it for a minute. Before you get going, okay, <clears throat> before you move on with your Christian life, before you get the record straight between you and Satan and between you and God, are there some things in your life that um, you found delight in that are not a God? You got some areas where suggestions just kind of knocking at you, that thing that just keeps drawing you away from Christ, that thing that you know is wrong, but it's looking better all the time. Mm, it's beautiful for food, isn't it? Yeah, I guess it is. That that idol that you got sneaking around in your life, that lie that you're living in your life, that grudge you just want to hang on to, that little bit of forgiveness you're not going to give, that thing that's mine and I'm not sharing it, nope, 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 that little lie you live in, that little truth you won't tell, that addiction you think you can't move past, 
Hey, listen, nothing will ever befall you that isn't common to man. And Jesus, in the desert against Lucifer, defeated him on your behalf. Child of Jesus, there is nothing in your life that you cannot overcome through the power and the love of Jesus Christ who can beat that affliction, that addiction, that fear, that failure, that thing you can't get past. He can walk you past it because he already beat the adversary. And when you become a child of Jesus Christ, that power to completely defeat Satan is yours. You own that. You don't have to be controlled by that addiction. Stand on top of it. Defeat it. Defeat it just like Jesus did with the words of Scripture. Just shut it down. That's exactly how Jesus defeated Satan. And that's how you can too. Through the power of Jesus Christ. Before you get going in that Christian life, the some of you have a moment. Is there a moment that you need to have in the wilderness where you get the record straight? You, you draw that line and you say, that's the past. That stays back there behind me. It's dead. And now I today in front of a cloud of witnesses affirm I'm going forward in the power and the blood of Jesus. And I'm not going to be the old woman, the old man, the old teen that I was. I'm going to be a mother that lives like God's example to my child. I'm going to be the husband that honors and loves and adores my family and treats them like the treasure that I'm responsible for. I'm going to be the boss that sets the example and the pace for people they can look forward to. I admire that. I'm going to be the person who has to admit, look, I, I was wrong. I need forgiveness for that. I'm, I'm the person who recognizes I've held this. i got to let this go. There has to come a time in our lives, that moment, just like John was calling for. you got to stop and leave that in the past and move forward. That's the wilderness experience that some of us need to have. Some of us just need to take some time. Let all the distractions around us go and get focused in front of our God and say, Lord, I need to get this right with you, your own personal wilderness experience. That is what Gregory was trying to tell us about, and this is what Jesus called us to, and this is what was taking place. I think we should stop there today, just, just for time's sake. So let me, let me ask our worship team to make your way uh, back up to the front today. Um, as we, as we think about what we've looked at um, in this, this wilderness experience of Jesus, the example that he was setting, I want us as a people to have a bit of our own little personal miniature wilderness experience today. You, you game? Can we do it? Now, we're not going to turn the heat up and, you know, make it super dry in here or anything weird like that or say no water, but what, what I want us to do is I want you to get inside your mind for just a second. I want you to just shut off what's going around. I'll ask you to close your eyes. Not because there's anything to hide, but because I want you to focus for a minute. I, I want you to just imagine yourself completely alone for a moment. Not the bad kind of alone. Imagine you're in just a wide open, empty desert expanse. There's sand and rocks and distant hills, but there's really nothing else there at all. It's just you having to deal with you. Now you, listen, you know you. You know the things about you that are real. You know the masks you wear. You know the fears you have, the lies you tell yourself. You know the grudges that you hold. You know the addictions that you retain. You know the things that you hold on to that God has no pleasure in. 
You know them. I want you to focus on the you that's right across from you for a minute. You looking at yourself in that desert. There's nothing else around. Nobody to hide from. Nobody to trick. No shame. Just you. And now Jesus joins you for a minute. In this wilderness, what is it that you need to just leave behind? What do you need to get straight? In this time where it's just you with you, just you with Jesus joining you, God, Lord, what about me needs to just stay here and be defeated? So that, so that at this moment we're drawing a line in this sand that's all around me, God. When I leave this place, that's behind me. I'm a new woman. I'm a new man. This will not follow me. This is defeated. Satan's a fool, and he doesn't get to touch me on this ever again because I've left it. Friends, have you, you seen that in the wilderness? There's just no reason to hang on to that. There's no reason to be defeated anymore. There's no reason to carry it around. It's gone. Leave it. Maybe, maybe what you've realized is today you need some other people to come alongside of you and walk with you as you leave this behind, as you step up now to the next level Jesus is calling you to. Not just leaving behind, but now moving ahead. There's no shame for those who are in Jesus. Pride has no place in the heart of a Christian. Asking somebody to walk with you as you move ahead, that is a brilliant picture of Christ-likeness. Let me ask you to stand. Still keeping eyes closed. Heads bowed, but would you stand around this congregation? Our, our elders are going to be coming forward at this point. They'll be across the front of the stage, elders and their wives, if you would. Maybe keep eyes closed. You don't need to look at me. As you're still in this moment of wilderness, that thing, that thing that you know has got to stop. It, it's got to be left. That thing we're overcoming, this thing that we're stepping beyond, as you, as you see it, let me challenge you today two ways. Maybe during this time as our worship team is singing, that, that <clears throat> maybe today, would you come and would you pray with one of these elder families? Listen, we have some wonderful women and men who are at the front of this church who would love you, would never tell your secret to a soul, but would love to pray with you and walk that journey with you. Maybe today you've been milling around church for a long time. But you've never made that commitment to Jesus Christ to make him Lord and Savior, to affirm that in the presence of believers and, and to give them the opportunity to stand and celebrate with you. Maybe today that battle in the wilderness of you is you needing to say, okay, Jesus, I surrender. I surrender all. All to you, Lord, I surrender. Maybe this is that day where you make that commitment known. Maybe today you've been milling around Sturgeon Bay Community Church for a while. 
You're not a part of a church anywhere. You just, you like being out there by yourself. You don't want, you don't want to be surrendered to anybody else's responsibility or authority. And you want to keep your gifts and talents to yourself. And you've lived that selfish, childish life for a long time. Maybe today is the day where you say, all right, all right. Today I step up. Today, Lord, it's time to make a commitment and be a part of a family of Jesus followers. As our worship team sings, if that's a decision you'd like to make today, can I invite you to come up and just grab the hand of some really great elders and let them know. If not, that's great. We'll be up here after the service as well. But let's just take this time to do some business with God. Some dedication, some focus. As they sing, you pray. Or maybe, come forward and let's get that decision made. a place where mercy reigns and never dies. There's a place where streams of grace flow deep and wide. Where all the Father God, today we gathered as a church. We gathered as the people who love you and call you Savior. We believe, God, that because you came and lived a sinless life and because that grave is empty, your resurrection changed everything. God, because of that, we too can be overcomers if we place our faith in you. God, no temptation will overcome us that isn't common to people. And you've defeated them already. So, Jesus, give us the faith and the confidence and the passion to live a life that's worthy of our calling and worthy of our name as Christian, Jesus follower. God, thank you for the example you set. Thank you for John Mark. Thank you for the remarkable way you worked out the events in his life so that as he wrote, we can read it and we can relate and understand what it must be like <laughs> to have seen Jesus in action. And to tell that story to countless millions for generations. Thank you, God, for his faithfulness. Let him know that the church here in Sturgeon Bay is grateful. And we look forward to the day where we can sit across the table and say, tell it to me in person. God, thank you for the safety and the fellowship that we enjoy in this place. We love you, God. You're our God. And we're your people. And we just celebrate you this morning. We pray it in the name of Jesus, through the power of his Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, congregation, you gathered here as a congregation. The challenge now is to go be the church.
go in peace.